I ask you to turn in the Bible, if you would, to the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah, this is a new study that we're going to start this morning. If you're somewhat new to our church or this is your first time here, this is kind of what we do at our church. We choose a book and then we walk through it. We take our time covering all that it says. We recently finished the book of Revelation. If you're interested in that, that's a long one. All of that is on the website. You can listen to those or even watch those. We're going to start a new one today. It's an Old Testament book, Nehemiah. Nehemiah is small, so it's kind of hard to find. So you may want to use a bookmark and just stick it there in your Bible, and that way you can find it every Sunday. It is very close to the middle. If you know where Psalms is, the book before Psalms is Job, and the book before Job is Esther, and the book before Esther is Nehemiah. It's Ezra, Nehemiah, Esther, Job, Psalms in your Old Testament. It's going to be a good study for us. If you've never been through a book study or a, a book of the Bible study, then glad that you're here, and hopefully you'll saddle up. Not exactly sure how many weeks we'll spend on this, but it's going to be nice to study this book. It's a different style of book. It's an interesting book. Uh, it's a story. It's an account of what happened in the life of Nehemiah, one of the Israelites. And hearing his story is very moving and very encouraging or inspiring for us to do something. So it's going to be a good study for us. Today we're going to start and cover all of chapter 1. But before we start, I just want to give you a little bit of an introduction. I won't do introduction like this every week. So really be the only time. Nehemiah is a faithful man of God that we learn about in this book. All right? He is. He is one of the Israelites that was captured by Babylon and taken into exile, all right? So he's had a hard life, hard story. But God blessed him, and he made the most of it, and now he's in a leadership position. He is the cupbearer there in exile, all right? That's, what he, that's who he is. You're going to see that. It's very clear at the very last verse of chapter 1. Now I was cupbearer to the king. But Nehemiah, being the awesome guy that he was, he never appears in the Bible other than this book. Interesting. In this book, he's got a, a, a key role, but other than this, he's not. There are a lot of other people in the Bible uh, that you hear about throughout the Bible. Moses and Daniel and Job and Joseph and people like that, King David. You, you hear about them in their books and throughout the Bible. Not so much with Nehemiah. He's only here. His name means Jehovah Comforts. And as we get into this, you're going to see how that's important. And he's really stepping into his name. The Lord comforts. Jehovah is the name of God. The Lord comforts. That's what Nehemiah means. All right? Now, the book right before Nehemiah is Ezra. And in lots of translations, Ezra and Nehemiah go together. Okay? They're, they're linked. All right? It seems like maybe Ezra wrote Nehemiah. But there's a lot in Nehemiah that is first-hand account, so a lot of people will say Nehemiah wrote it. When we start today here in just a minute, it says the words of Nehemiah. So that's pretty simple, right, the words of Nehemiah. But it seems like maybe Ezra had access to Nehemiah's writings or his journal or his personal stuff, and so he's, Ezra's doing it. The reason why I think that is because in some translations, all right, in some translations, like years ago, there was First Ezra and Second Ezra. All right? But here, it's in ours, we call this Nehemiah. All right? And it's the uh, second Ezra in some. All right? So Ezra and Nehemiah may have even been one book originally. Okay? So I said that Nehemiah is not named anywhere else in the Bible. Here's another thing that goes along with that. The book of Nehemiah, so these 13 chapters here, I said it's small, 13 chapters. It's not quoted in the New Testament either. So not only is Nehemiah the guy not mentioned anywhere else in the Bible, but the book is not quoted in the New Testament, all right? So that means, that means something, all right? So what had happened was Jerusalem had been overtaken. We're going to get into this a little bit more. Uh, but because God had often said, if you guys disobey me and turn against me, I'm going to send destruction on you. And God did that for a long time. That's what happened. 
They turned their backs on God, and God sent destruction, and so they were overtaken. Jerusalem was overtaken. It was broken down. It was ransacked. It was destroyed, and even the walls that were a defense mechanism around the city, which was really common back in the day, they were broken down, and the people were taken into exile, all right? And so it's coming out of that that we kind of get this book, Nehemiah, all right? Now, before we start reading, I want to say two things. I want us, and I will remind you of this uh, a lot. I'll remind you of this often, okay? Nehemiah is a book about leadership, all right? It's a book about leadership. If you've been interested in some leadership, if you've been trying to go and find you a good book at Walmart on leadership, look no further than the book of Nehemiah. This is an excellent book on leadership. And I know there are a lot of people that sit there and go, I ain't a leader, I'm past those days, okay? So I might tune out to this. I want to remind you that everybody's a leader in some regard. You may not be a leader on your team or in your office, but you're definitely a leader in your home. You have to be. You're definitely a leader in your marriage and a leader in your uh, parenting. You're a leader over your grandkids. And if you still would push back to that and say, nope, I don't even lead them, you're a leader to yourself. And perhaps that's the most important leadership needed. You might look yourself in the mirror and say, here's the direction I need to go. Here's the responsibilities that I have to identify. And here's the things I need to do. Every one of us are leaders of something, even if that is only leading ourselves. So I don't want this to only be a study on leadership. There are lots of preachers that turn the book of Nehemiah just into a study on leadership. We're not going to do that. But week after week, you're going to see leadership principles coming out. If you are here today and you sense and you feel that God is making you into a leader, maybe you just had a child and you're thinking, man, I got a lot of responsibility and I got plans for this kid and I want to love this kid well, then this is a great study for you. If you're on a team and you're a player and you're a captain or anything like that, this is a study for you, all right? If you have uh, people that work under you in any capacity, this is a study for you because there's so much leadership here. We will learn a lot from Nehemiah, all right? That's the first thing I wanted y'all to hear, and I'll remind us of that a lot. But the second thing here is I want us to be very careful with application, okay? Preachers and Christians and churches get wrong a lot. When some application can be made of what the Bible teaches, but the application becomes kind of more important or more critical than what the Bible's actually teaching. We have to guard ourselves for that, okay? Because here's what happens in the book of Nehemiah. Jerusalem is a mess. And Nehemiah is bothered by that. All right? He's rightly bothered by that. And he says, something's got to be done. Somebody's got to step up. We got we to make a change. Man, I'm tired of my city being like this. Okay? Now listen, that's great. It's a great point of application for you to say, I'm tired of my city being like this. Right? Our city's been suffering all week because of shootings, and we woke up this morning to another shooting in Louisville, right? Well, it's a point of application, all right, for you to say, yeah, we need to do something about our city, all right? But the book of Nehemiah is not teaching for us to do something about our city. Uh, Everybody following me? The book of Nehemiah is Nehemiah being burdened that God is not being worshipped, all right? If Jerusalem is the place, the holy city, where the people of God lived and the glory of God is to be known because of the people of God and the way they're living, and they're not, it's a spiritual issue. And Nehemiah's biggest burden is not that the city would prosper for the sake of the city prospering. Nehemiah's bigger burden is that God's not being worshipped. And the people of God aren't concerned about living for the glory of God. If the people of God are concerned about living for the glory of God, then the city would be in better shape. Is everybody following me? So the application is the application, but we cannot become people who just want to move straight to application and leave out the spiritual aspect of it. The book of Nehemiah is about Christian people saying, I need to be living for Jesus. He died on the cross for my sins. He saved my soul, and I want to live for him. People need to know him. God should be worshipped here. God should be worshipped there. Christians should be walking in obedience there. Light needs to be light, and darkness needs to be darkness, and light needs to be overcoming darkness, right? Christians need to feel that, and Nehemiah does. Nehemiah has that burden. 
And so what he does from there is he goes to work on seeing that the city, that the city more particularly, that the walls would be rebuilt. Okay? When you walk out of here today, and if the wind, because it's supposed to be getting windy today, you walk out here today and the, the wind has picked up the trash can out of the playground, which is full seemingly every single day, which is a good sign. That means a lot of people are using it, all right? And if the trash has been picked up and now there's trash all over the yard, I hope every one of us think, you know what? I got some application. Because I love Jesus in my heart and I want to live for God and I want to make a difference around here, I'm going to go pick up this trash, Right? If you see trash in your school or at your office or in your yard or in your backyard or on your driveway or wherever, you ought to be picking up the trash. You ought not to be okay with this place being trashy. But that's a point of application. That's not what the Bible's teaching us today. Is everybody following me on that, okay? Oh, my goodness. I am scared to death this morning and the next several Sunday mornings that we're just going to be people who are all about the application here. Let's make our city better. And that's not it. That's one of the many applications, okay? And we will discuss that. But the bigger thing, much, much deeper, is that you and I would be gripped and convicted like Nehemiah that God's not being worshipped. And the people that claim to, to, to worship God aren't living the way God is telling them to live. Therefore, the city is still broken down and Jerusalem is not prospering and the walls are not being rebuilt. Everybody got me on that? So two kind of disclaimers to begin. That first one's on leadership, and that second one is on application. It's going to be a great study. Read with me, if you will, Nehemiah chapter 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hananiah, Hananiah one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, Confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was cupbearer to the king. That's a good opening chapter. This chapter will set the tone for the entire study. Cupbearer was a neat role. It wasn't a huge role by status and by title. But it was a very, very important role by significance. And here's what I mean. The cupbearer was, all right, like a bodyguard, like a security detail, but also like a partner with the king. They didn't get there because they were so good and so successful and, 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 and so credentialed, but because they're in the role, they're huge. In those days, there were constant efforts to kill the king. 
If you could kill the king, you could change everything. You could change the city. You could change the nation. You could change the direction of everything, right? Everything went as the king went. And so there were lots of attempts to kill him. Assassinations. And they would often do it by getting him to drink poison. So you know what they had? A cupbearer. It was a person whose whole position, whose whole responsibility was to taste every single drink that the king would drink before he drank it. That's his job. That's who Nehemiah is. He's the cupbearer. And every time he ate, breakfast, lunch, and dinner, afternoon Gatorades, whatever it is, this guy had to drink something to drink. Nehemiah had to take a couple sips of it first to see if he didn't knock over. And if Nehemiah survived it, then the king could drink it. That's his role. So you don't have to be really awesome to get in that role. You really got to be crazy to get in that role, okay? But once you're in that role, you're with the king a lot. You're a bodyguard, security detail, and and really kind of like a buddy, kind of like a partner to the king. And that's who Nehemiah is. But remember, Nehemiah, he's now living in an exile place. He's in Babylon, okay? But he's in Israel. He's, He's an Israelite. He's in the family of God. And so, it's hard to tell about him. He was probably even born there. And so he didn't come through the exile originally. He was born there, probably. And so Nehemiah is this interesting figure who has found some success. He's prospering, really. He's got a good role. He's got a good job. He spends a lot of time in the palace. He spends a lot of time with the king. He's the cupbearer. But his roots, his identity is faith in the one true and living God. He's a believer in God. And so the story unfolds like this. The first point I want us to recognize this morning, I got three points for us. The first point I want us to recognize this morning is genuine concern. If you're taking notes, write this down, genuine concern. Okay, if you kids have a listening page, that's number one. Genuine concern. Okay. Nehemiah is working. He's working for the king. It tells us that he's in Susa, all right, the citadel, which this kind of becomes like a a summer vacation area, I mean a winter vacation area. There's a lot of time that kings would spend time in Susa. You might remember this, that the book of Esther is set in Susa. You might remember that word. So he's down here working in Susa. And one of his brothers and some of the other men return from Judah. The book of Ezra tells us that there were a couple trips planned, okay, where they would go back into Jerusalem. Remember, they're, they're, they're exiles. And they would go back into Jerusalem. Let's see what it's like, see some family, see how the progress is going. Is it being rebuilt? Hey, is the, is the city safe enough for us to move back there? Because they were now allowed to go back to the city. But because it was so bad, like a war-torn country, because it was so bad, a lot of them didn't want to. And so are these trips going back. If you read the book of Ezra, it'll tell you the first trip. It'll tell you the second trip. And it's a long trip, long trip. Sometimes it'll take a month or so or more just to go, all right? And, and, and so groups would go there. Well, Nehemiah's not going because he's the cupbearer to the king. He's got to take that drink all day, every day. He's got to protect the king. But his brother goes. So it tells us right there with the other guys. Hananiah, one of my brothers, came back with certain men from Judah, so they returned. And so Nehemiah asks concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and he asked concerning Jerusalem. My first point this morning is genuine concern. Okay? Genuine concern. Nehemiah here, working in Susa, Working for the king, living in another place, has a heart for his homeland, has a heart for his people, has a heart for the people claimed by God. At first glance, you might think that this is just a question. Hey, how you doing? Hey, just got back from vacation. Oh, how was it there? It's much more than that, much more than that. This is genuine concern. And the reason why we know that 
It's because of the way he responds. And we're going to get to that here with my second point. But folks, as Christian people who know that Jesus died on the cross for our sins and that he rose again to newness of life, things matter to us. Concern is a real part of the Christian faith. We don't live in a bubble, uh, ignoring everything around us. We don't live to ourselves, thinking only about us. We live for the glory of God, and so we are concerned about things. We're concerned about places, and most importantly, we are concerned about people. This mattered to Nehemiah. Notice what he asks. I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. You could almost hear him asking, man, I haven't been there in a long time. How are they doing? Are they hopeful? Are they beat down? Are they happy? He was concerned. It mattered to him. And so he asked, you've all been in a situation before where you're supposed to have been concerned, but you were busy, and so you didn't ask. And somebody got upset with you because they said, don't you even care? You didn't even ask. You know I went to the doctor yesterday. You know I'm going through this. You know this was happening. And you didn't even ask. Well, here we have Nehemiah concerned, genuinely concerned from his heart. And so he inquired. Folks, one of the first characteristics of Christians is that the things of God now matter to us. If God has taught that the good news of Jesus as a savior of sinners is to be spreading, then it matters to us, is it spreading? If Jesus is the one that satisfies hearts and forgives sins and restores lives, is, if, if that's what he does, and it is what he does, I've experienced it, many of you all have experienced it, if that's what he does, then it immediately becomes a concern, a genuine concern to us of, of all the people that aren't experiencing it. Of all the people that are still struggling, beaten down in their sins, wondering why they're even here, what's their purpose, that nobody loves them, that their sins aren't forgiven, convicted and burdened and guilty in their sins. Several years ago on Wednesday nights, we kind of recaptured that Wednesday night here at this church is going to be a focused prayer time. We know it's not all that special or all that attractive. We know it's not the best service in the world that gets all, everybody in town wants to come to it. It really is a group of people on Wednesday night meeting in a little room in a church basement praying. That's what it is. It's not flashy. But the reason why we started that is because we knew that we needed to get our hearts concerned with what God's concerned about. And a prayer meeting will do that, won't it? It may not draw in the biggest crowds, but a prayer meeting will do that. When you sit down and you humble yourself and you bow your head and you give time to think about what's going on, when you hear somebody raise their hand and say, I work over here and I'm the only Christian in that office, would you pray for me? Or you hear somebody say, I just moved into this neighborhood and my kids are really trying to find some friends. Would you pray for me? Or you hear somebody say, I've been witnessing to this person down the street. We've been talking about the Lord. We've been having some good conversations. And I want God to sa save them. When you start hearing those things, you become concerned about for what God's doing in the world. This is what a prayer meeting is. It's what a prayer meeting's supposed to do. And we don't just talk about the prayers, but then we get into the prayers. Well, it's not on our prayer sheet now. We might need to get back to it. But for years and years and years, on that prayer sheet that our church uses every single week, at the very top of it, it had this phrase that we came up with. And it says, if it matters to God, it matters to me. And if it matters to you, then it matters to us. I like that phrase, don't you? That is faith and that is church family in one tight little slogan. If it matters to God, then it matters to me because I believe in him. I walk by faith. He saved my soul. He's forgiven my sins. He's the Lord of my life. He's my only comfort in life and death, Jesus Christ. If it matters to him, it matters to me. But this is a prayer meeting and we're a church family and we know what's going on and the needs of people around us. And if it matters to them, then it matters to all of us. And we're going to work on this together. 
That's genuine concern. The book of of Nehemiah begins with Nehemiah in his sweet little special role as the cupbearer being genuinely concerned for Jerusalem and the people there. That's number one. Number two, not only did he have genuine concern, but he also had a godly grief. He had a godly grief. All right? If you've been to some of our funerals, then you've, you've heard this before. But grief can be a good thing, right? Sometimes grief is horrible. But there is such thing as good grief, all right? That's a common expression, I know that. But there is. There are times when you should be grieved over things. And so we use the expression good grief. Now, nobody likes grief. Nobody likes to grieve. I understand that. But there are things that we should be grieving over, and this is what he does. Look at his response. Verse 3, here's what they say. They said to me, and this is a heavy response. This also shows that his concern was genuine. The remnant there in the province, the remnant, y'all, are the, the people of God, the Israelites that are there. The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. That's the first thing. Second thing, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. So his genuine concern, I told you, was for the place and the people and their answer speaks to that, to the place and the people because they know that this represents God and his glory being spread. Verse 4 shows us his response. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. The reason why we know we had a genuine concern is because he now has a godly grief. This news hurt him. He felt this. He felt for them, and it upset him. In his unique role as cupbearer to the king, you could say he was thriving, but Nehemiah's people weren't, and he felt that. When you're connected to any real group or team, when one rejoices, the others rejoice, and when one suffers, the others suffer. The New Testament teaches us this about the church of Jesus Christ, that we feel for each other. The Bible teaches that we care for one another, love one another, serve one another, forgive one another, encourage one another, bear with one another. We could go on and on. Nehemiah models this by faith, a godly grief. He was concerned about them, so he asked. He got a bad report. They're in trouble and shame. They're in trouble and shame, and he felt it. If you're concerned about somebody, and they're honest and humble enough to open up to you that it's not going well, how you respond to that lets them know what your faith is really like. Do you understand that, church? If you ask somebody how they're doing, and they dare open up to you and say, My marriage is in shambles. How you respond to that is going to let them know how seriously you take God and loving each other. That's truth. One of the ways that we know Nehemiah was the real deal is because when he said, how are things back there? How are they doing? And they gave this report, he could have just said, "Mm, hate to hear that, and gone back to his prosperous life. He was close to the king. But he didn't. He felt it. When I say he felt it, he felt it. It burdened him, which we're going to get to in a second. He felt the godly grief. You know, Christians are to be those that are sensitive to what's going on around us. Christians are to be those who have sympathy for those suffering around us. We are. And we get this from Jesus. Let me read this account to you. All right? We know Jesus is this way. His whole life was this. But let me just read these words to you. This is right after Palm Sunday, which was two weeks ago, the triumphal entry when Jesus entered Jerusalem so he would be killed. Literally, this is the next passage after the triumphal entry. 
Luke 19, 41 says, And when Jesus drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground. Jesus entered Jerusalem. He was upset over it. He crying. That's Luke's account. Another account tells us that he was upset because they were like sheep without a shepherd. There was a godly grief in Nehemiah's heart for the people. We see a godly grief in Jesus for the people. And so Nehemiah feels this. It's not just an initial. He didn't have to walk out and take a break. He didn't go need to take a 15 minute or an hour. He didn't need to. No, look what it says. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down, wept, mourned, and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah had a godly grief here. T.J. Betts in his commentary on Nehemiah writes, his perseverance in prayer and his fasting is an indication of what his priorities are and the depth of his faith. Because Nehemiah was such a believer and truster in God, he felt this more. So he goes into prayer and fasting. Well, let's look at his prayer. His prayer takes us all the way to the end of chapter 1, but I want to look at it for a second. Verse 5. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments... Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Let's stop there for a second. This is a very telling prayer. First of all, he's nowhere near mad at God, okay? Not even close to that. He's not even going to dare try to blame God that God is doing something that they don't deserve. There's nowhere near that. If you'll listen carefully to everybody around you today that even acts like they're trusting in God, there's so much of blaming God. There's so much of why, God, I don't deserve this. There is. There's none of this here. None of this here at all. Matter of fact, the far other end of the spectrum is shown. He says, okay, and notice, he's here in exile doing his thing. He's cupbearer. He's in a pretty good role. He's concerned for Jerusalem and the people there, but he is confessing their sins and his sins and everybody's sins. He recognizes, God, we've not honored you. We've not honored you. Now, we've got to be careful here when we study an Old Testament book because there's a big difference between what we call the Mosaic Covenant, the covenant with Moses, or, the, or just regularly the Old Covenant, and the New Covenant, which is by faith in Christ, okay? Let me get you. Let me, let me, let me, let me teach you all this just real quickly. The Old Covenant, okay, which could never save. Everybody hear me? I used to be able to clap louder. The Old Covenant could never save. And the old covenant says this, from God, if you obey me, I'll bless you. I'll make you prosper. If you disobey me, I will curse you and bring judgment on you. That is from God, and it could never save. Does everybody hear that? There's a whole lot of Christianity in America that still believes that. It didn't save Israel. It didn't save 50 years ago, and it for sure won't save you now. The saving message from God is not, obey me and I'll bless you, disobey me and I'll curse you. Does everybody hear that? That's the old covenant. It was really helpful. 
It's the covenant that God gave to Moses. It became an incredible gauge for these people on why things are happening in their lives. It became an incredible gauge for where God is and what's going on with them. And it pushed them greatly to see that God is a merciful God. And God forgives people because he is a good and forgiving God. He doesn't give you anything because you've earned it or because you've not earned it. Your sins have separated you from God, but God forgives people who turn back to him and say, God, it's your character, your nature, your goodness, your love that saves. The Mosaic Covenant did not fully bring that about. In that passage that we, that we read earlier, the uh, Deuteronomy 30 passage that Jake read, it talks in there about how he will give new hearts. See, the New Covenant says that God's going to do the work. He's going to change people on the inside out. He's going to give you a new heart. He's going to make you alive. And when God gives you a new heart and gives you life and, and gives you faith, then you respond with wanting to love and obey God. That's what the new covenant is. The new covenant is, is that God is going to make sure that there are people in the world that know him and love him and want to obey him. That's the work that he's doing in the world. And he does that by putting people believing in Christ. The old covenant served the new covenant by showing us we cannot save ourselves. We're more like this roller coaster. And if the Christian life for us is just a roller coaster of some days I want to obey God and some days I don't, then that's a sign that we have not necessarily found the new covenant. The new covenant is God loves you. He sent Christ to die for your sins. If you'll repent of your sins and trust in him, he will change your life. And guess what? The result of that is a lot of changed lives. People that love him. And so what you've got going on here is Nehemiah confessing we've broken the old covenant. The reason why we're in this mess is because of our sins. Their sins, my sins, my dad's sins, our house's sins, all of our sins. We've not honored you, God. You told us to go out there and live for you and trust you and you would take care of us. We didn't do that. We did our own thing. And we started living however we want to. And so we got Nehemiah now feeling this burden. He knows that things are way out of order. In this prayer, he mentions eight times the word servants. That shows that he really feels we're not being what we were supposed to be, God. God, you're being a good God to us. We are supposed to be your servants, but we've not lived like we love you. And he mentions servants eight times. It's really heavy. He feels this grief. He feels this grief because... He's not exactly living in it, but his people are. This is where you see his leadership start to step up. Listen to this. Leaders are sensitive to the needs of others around them. Of course, we're sensitive to our own needs. But leaders are sensitive to the needs of others around them. One commentary says, the point I want to make is this. The people that God uses are people who care about the things that God cares about. If our church wants to make a difference here in this town, we've got to feel that there are needs around us. That's what's happening in Nehemiah's life. It's remarkable how much he feels this, right? There's a lot of people that move and they're gone and they don't ever look back to those people that they used to run with. There's some people that never check up on the people that they went to high school with. They never check up with the people that they used to hang out with, right? But not Nehemiah. Nehemiah feels this. He cares about the things that God cares about. God cared about the fact that the walls of Jerusalem were broken down. Now they were insecure. The walls of Jerusalem served so that nobody could come in and attack it. So they were allowed to go back to their city. They're living there, some of them. They're trying to prosper They've got no defense. It's just a mess. So nobody's happy. As the report says, they're in trouble and shame. Since God cared about this, Nehemiah cared about this. And that made him a leader. We can't miss just the obvious that Nehemiah could have just responded with, that stinks. Well, shucks. That's unfortunate. Nehemiah feels it. And you're going to see his action take birth or growth out of it. Bob Pierce, the founder of World Vision, said this, let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. It's a good prayer, isn't it? God, let my heart be broken with the things that break the heart of God. 
That's the first step of being a good leader, a sensitivity to the needs around you. Church, we've got to feel the needs around us. Starting first and foremost with each other. If there are people in our church that are suffering, we need to feel that for them. If there are people in our church that need encouragement, we've got to have that for them. If there are people in our church that have physical needs, then we've got physical resources. There better not be anybody in this church going hungry or going without. And if there is, please let us know. Step further, there better not be anybody in this town or in this area that's needy without us knowing about it. We got enough food to feed people. If there's somebody hungry, we want to know about it. There's somebody needs shoes, we want to know about it. There's a kid that needs school supplies, we want to know about it. We feel these needs. We're not here living in our own little tunnel of just concerned about us. The Bible teaches us, Jesus teaches us, that we carry grief when we see people that are struggling. That starts with us for the glory of God, but we feel that abroad. T.J. Betts' commentary says this, Nehemiah's reaction is more than just a reflection of his culture or religious tradition. He is deeply grieved by the great distress and reproach of the people and the broken down condition of the holy city. Nehemiah sincerely empathizes with the misery his people are experiencing. The bold actions he takes to rectify the situation in Judah are born out of a deep burden for its people and his commitment to his God. It's a godly grief. Now, grief, again, sounds like a bad thing, but there are times when you and I should feel it. I want to ask you here today, would you be honest enough? Don't let it stress you out. Would you be honest enough to recognize that there are some needs in your life. There's some needs in our church. There's some needs in your home, in your community, in your family. There are needs around us, and we need to feel that. We cannot be like the parable of the Good Samaritan, like the religious people, that as soon as we see it, we say, let's go this way so don't we have to deal with it. It's not what Nehemiah did. Nehemiah could have stayed and just focused in on his own task. He could have just stayed his lane. But instead, he felt the grief. Who is it around you right now that you know needs some love, you know needs some encouragement? Friday night, we had an awesome, awesome encouraging word from Brianna Hughes as she reminded us from whatever passage that was that the Bible says to encourage the discouraged. What verse was that? Jake, you remember? 1 Thessalonians 5. She reminded us to encourage the discouraged. Man, that hit me like a wave, that there are discouraged people here. Are there people here this morning that are discouraged, beat down? I felt that as we sang the song earlier, it says, now I am happy all the day, to which half of us thought, I ain't happy today. We're just singing it because the lyrics said to. Are there discouraged people around you? Yeah, we know what the Bible says, that the people that know the love of God want to encourage them. Want to build them up, want to be present, want to be helpful, want to take some burden. We feel that. Nehemiah does, and real Christians want to be like Nehemiah and say, if you're going through it, I'm going to go through it with you. If it matters to God, it matters to me, and if it matters to you, it matters to us. It was a godly grief. May we be real Christians that grieve over the right things. It's getting old to hear people talk about how things used to be, isn't it? There's so much talk about how things used to be. We hear that all the time. Young people didn't live through how things used to be. So to them, it is completely, like 100%, just a negative and just a downer. It's a good conversation if you lived how things used to be because you can get into why is it, what can we change, and what changed, and all. That's a good conversation if you're older. But if you're younger, it's just like blah, 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 like rain on my day a little bit more. I get it, Dad. I mean, everything was cool back then, and you walked to school, and y'all were tougher, and y'all were, and y'all had jobs, and y'all were 12, and you bought your first house when you were 18. I get that. But for young people, they don't hear that. All they hear is the negativity, like we're not going to live that. We're living in a different time. And so the reality becomes, okay, Are we bothered by, are we grieved by, are we feeling just the way things are? And can we just feel that? People are beat down. People are hurting. People aren't happy. People are angry. 
and grieve along with them and grieve for it. So the first thing is he was genuinely concerned. Why are you feeling that way? How are you doing? The second one was he had godly grief. And then the third and final point this morning is he took on a good burden. He took on a good burden. Nehemiah knew that this was going to change some things. He knew that the time he woke up was going to have to change. He knew how tired he was going to be was going to have to change. He knew all the blessings in his income was going to have to change. He knew that all the, all the nice new things in his life were going to have to change. And he welcomed that burden because it was for a good cause. Look at verse 5. I'm sorry. Look at verse 8. Still praying, he says, remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. That's still old covenant, right? Remember I told you the Mosaic covenant, the covenant to Moses? He is reminding God here of what he said to Moses. If you remember that you told Moses, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples, right? So that's what's happened. They're scattered among the peoples because they were unfaithful. But look at verse 9. He's reminding this to God. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people. Look at this. Whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. This is Nehemiah recalling the exodus and the salvation that God had already brought to them. And the redemption that he had already done as he set them free out of Egypt and slave. He is telling God this. Not because he's trying to remind God of something that God's forgotten. He's trying to inquire in prayer. God, this is who you are. He is pleading now. He feels this. God, you're a good God to your people. You're a saving God to your people. You said that you were going to save them to bring them out that they would live for you. And right now they're not. So I come to you God I'm reminding you you saved them one time do it again God if we're supposed to be a light here in South Louisville God we're not that bright make us a light God if we're supposed to be people convicted by the sin in our lives then bring that conviction upon us you said that's what you do God do it and this is what he's saying he feels this he's welcoming this into his life on their behalf look at verse 10 They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. Oh, Lord, this is where it gets really good. Let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. Now he's talking about himself. Listen to me, God, he says. Let your ear hear me. And to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. Look at this. And give success to your servant today. What a prayer. He's asking God to put the burden on him. He wants to do something about it. He says, give success, God, to your servant today. And look at this final line. And grant him mercy in the sight of this man. And this man becomes the king. The king that he's the cupbearer to. And what's about to unfold is he's about to go to the king. He's going to ask the king, king, would you let me go? Would you let me go back to Jerusalem? I'm tired of it being like that. I'm tired of the glory of God not being known. I'm tired of people not living for, for God. King, would you allow me to leave and go back to my city? And see, so what happens is, this becomes one of those neat things where Nehemiah has such high character. He's such a good leader. He's such a man of integrity that the king that doesn't know God is going to be respectful to Nehemiah and let him. It brings up Joseph. It brings up Daniel. It brings up Moses. It brings up these other stories. It brings up Esther. It brings up Mordecai. It brings up these other stories in the Old Testament where the people of God were living faithful to God even in unfortunate circumstances. And guess what? The king is going to let Nehemiah go and he's going to become this very, very unexpected leader back in Jerusalem and they're going to build the walls. They're going to work to make sure that the glory of God is known. He brings this burden upon him. Betts writes, the Lord's not only moving in the heart of Nehemiah, but he providentially put Nehemiah in the proper place to act on behalf of Jerusalem. It is just one more instance in the scriptures where one sees God at work on a grander scale, while at the same time working in the lives of particular individuals in specific situations. Even though Nehemiah serves the Persian king, Nehemiah is first and foremost a servant of the Lord. 
Y'all, God is working through us. And we don't need God to change the things around us as much as we need to be the opportunity to serve him where we're at. He welcomes this burden upon him. Another commentator says, when the situation needed a leader, Nehemiah said, I volunteer, here am I, send me. He had the job, he had the position, the problem he could say was a thousand miles away. It's two months away across the desert by Camelback. And Nehemiah felt it so much that he said, I'll go. I'm not a contractor, I'm a cupbearer, but I'll rebuild the wall. And God still chose him even though he didn't have the skills for that particular job. But he was sensitive and he was dependable and he was available. You might have heard it said like this before. God is not looking for you to have the ability as much as he's looking for you to have credibility, dependability, and availability. Nehemiah welcomes the burden that's everybody else's. This is Christianity. This is what it means to be a church. Jesus did not sin. He didn't have to die for sin. Jesus did not disobey, and Jesus did not have to take the punishment for disobedience. But Jesus being the ultimate leader and the shepherd and the savior and the sin bearer was willing to take your burden for him. Nehemiah models that for us in that he was willing to take the burden, a good burden. He knew it was gonna be hard, but he wanted it. He had a genuine concern. He had a godly grief. And he had a good burden. If you're here today and you're not trusting in Christ, would you? Would you recognize your sins? Would you recognize that it's a sinful world? And would you recognize that we need to turn to God? May Nehemiah start us in a good direction of re-centering our lives on Jesus. That Jesus is the one that gives us that focus. The focus is not just on us, of we're going to live for us, and we want to be great, and we want to repair our city and all that. No, that this is about God, and that we need Christ to set our lives focused on God. And so we turn to him, and we bow to him, and we say, God, have mercy upon us. Man, everybody around, my neighbors don't know God. My, my schools don't know God. Our town doesn't know God. It's not helpful for us to just keep saying that, but recognize the burden and say, God, use me to create a difference there. That's what Nehemiah did. And the first step in that is to say, God, I'm turning my life to you. And then may the result of that, may the application of that be that God starts using us. That God starts using us where we are, like Nehemiah, to make a difference. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this intro to the book of Nehemiah. God, I pray that you would make us people that are concerned and make us people that are grieved and people that are burdened. Father, may we not be indifferent to it. I know it's hard, but God, we ask that you would be at work in us, that you would be the the very difference in the presence. Oh, Father, help us to center our lives on you. Father God, help us to recognize that you use people, and you can use us just like you used him. Father, we do ask for your blessing on this study. God, we pray you'd bless This church is study in the book of Nehemiah, that your word would go to work in us. God, help us now to refocus. God, help us to refocus. Help us to turn to Christ and believe that he's the one we need. God, we ask your blessing on us as we turn to Jesus. In his name we pray, amen. As we're introducing this study and this is our first